Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. I realize it's not a great morning if you like college football and you want it to start on time. It might. You know, it still might. There's nothing official yet. But, man, it was just a cascade of bad news yesterday. Ohio State pausing campus workouts because they had athletes testing positive for the virus. North Carolina halting voluntary workouts because they had positive tests for the virus. The Ivy League saying they're not going to play sports in the fall. Football and anything else in the fall. They're not going to do it. And Stanford dropped 11 sports. 11 it's all bad news. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. Could stuff still happen? Sure. But remember when the SEC was bold and like, we're going to make it happen, and if the rest of you pansies don't want to come along, eh, we're on our own timeline, and we're not waiting for anybody else? Well, Paul Feinbaum says he doubts college football will start on time. Now, that's doubt. He doesn't guarantee or promise. But he's Paul Feinbaum. He's connected. I think he talks to SEC administrators. I think he talks to SEC coaches. I don't think he's throwing something out there just because, and the media's here to scare people. I think he's throwing stuff out there because that's what he's heard and that's what he thinks is going to happen. Now, it's doubt. It's not a guarantee. So, you know, if you want to hold out hope, hey, a little positivity, why not? I think you got to be realistic, but hold out some hope and put a little positivity in the mix. Be realistic, but throw in a little positivity. But Paul Feinbaum... Ohio State, North Carolina, Ivy League, Stanford. Man, that was a lot of bad news yesterday. All right, uh, we're going to get to, uh, we got multiple things to get to coming. We're going to talk a little golf with Masters Cheer Mike, Masters Champ Mike Weir in this hour. And uh, we're going to talk Utah Jazz uh, right now and uh, a little later as well. Um, from the D News, Sarah Todd's going to join us. We're going to hear from her a little later this hour. But first, Dennis Lindsay, and he talked for about half an hour, but some of his comments, some of his reactions, uh, as he met with the media, Zoom phone call, Justin Zanuck also on the call. And so here are the Jazz Brass answering questions. Uh, this is for Dennis. Hey, Dennis, I was a little hey, unclear. Did you have the ability to sign somebody to replace Boyan after his injury to take down to Orlando? And if you do choose to replace somebody, how, how does that process work for you guys internally? So, so Boyan, we do not have the ability to have a plus one on our roster. Uh, those are for COVID-19 positive tests. So uh, inside of the uh, player personnel uh, window that the league gave us, I believe starting, when was that, Justin, on the 22nd, 23rd of June? Does that sound right? Um, we, uh, we would have had to waive a player, uh, to add a player, if you will. Now, obviously things are quite fluid. Uh, our health performance team, uh, and our coaches have really performed really well to create a safe environment. Uh, so to date, as we know it, we haven't had any COVID-19, uh, positive test. Uh, the players, coaches, Justin's part of the uh, of the Disney campus um, group. Um, we're currently going through those protocols, but uh, obviously this testing is basically done then uh, every day and is quite dynamic and, and obviously could change. It, it, one one thing aside, Ben, uh, it is the the process to to get a player. Uh, on our roster uh, and the quarantine period uh, 
a new player would have to go through was material for us to bring our two ways, Justin Wright Foreman and Jarrell Brantley. Uh, we wanted them to be uh, in uh, Orlando at the Disney campus in case something were to happen because those guys, the, the success that they had for the Salt Lake City Stars, their development, their current levels, we thought that in replacement, uh, those were two of our better options. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, next question, Eric Walden, Tribune. Hey, guys, thanks for taking the time. Uh, my question was for Justin. Uh, Justin, because you are in Orlando, just kind of curious if you could take us through the mechanics of what it was like getting into the bubble, kind of the process of that, that everyone had to go through and experience just to uh, gain admission there. Sure. So it's what, 4.08 PM Eastern here. So I've been here. We landed at about 7.15 last night. I'll tell you, Eric, the, the weirdest thing was getting on a plane again after first four months, even though it was a familiar Delta charter and the familiar seat, but one, it's a long flight. It's four hours. And then when we landed, we had um, just, I will say in general, the NBA has done a great job on logistics. I mean, they're literally putting on something that's been unprecedented uh, by any team sport ever. And the logistics, they executed very, very well last night and continuing today. We landed at the airport. They've got two Disney Cruise Line buses for us. So, some of the guys were asking where their Mickey Mouse ears were. We didn't get those off the bus. Um, we had a police escort to the hotel, which Orlando traffic can be uh, troublesome sometimes. So we only it was only 25 minutes to the hotel. And as soon as we get to the hotel, we get ushered right into a room where Mark Tatum, Jerome Pickett, uh, a few other NBA executives gave a short presentation to the players, uh, about 15 minutes. And we immediately got tested right then and there. As soon as we finished our tests, they gave us our Disney um, Disney bands, which function as our room keys and the ways we pay for them. And we get this bright green uh, wristband to show that we are under quarantine. And then we go straight to our rooms. So um, they bring us, they brought us dinner last night, breakfast and lunch today. Uh, I'll get another, a second, provided the first one comes back negative, which we're waiting this afternoon. Tonight, we'll get another test at about nine o'clock. The um, technicians will come to each room and do the test. And then once we get a second negative test, which we should know sometime in the morning, uh, we're out. And uh, so if you have any, if you want any reviews about the hotels or restaurants or what Disney looks like, I have no idea. I've seen the lobby for about 15 seconds and then the inside of the rooms. The rooms are nice. They're well appointed. Um, it's a, a fairly new hotel, too. So, so far, so good. Thank you. Okay. Next question, Ryan Miller, KSL. Uh, this one's for Dennis. So obviously Justin's in Orlando. What was kind of the process of cutting the traveling party to 35? And can you kind of give us a rundown of who went? Yeah. So I, I, I prefer not to get into all the specifics because it would take up so much time on this call, Ryan. And frankly, uh, we gave Quinn and Mike Elliott, our VP of health performance, uh, the lion's share of say on who, uh, went down uh, to uh, the Orlando campus. Um, 
And the, the biggest um, consideration were those people that were in service to the players. Not to say that those who stayed back weren't of great service, but obviously Quinn and Mike had to make those cuts. And those were uh, very uh, agonizing decisions. But uh, hands-on players, Mike Elliott uses uh, the Fusionetics discipline. And for those of you who don't know what Fusionetics is, it's simply stated joint mobility. So our players get on a table uh, 15 minutes before practice, uh, 15 minutes after practice, same thing with games. And it's a, quite a dynamic process to make sure uh, that their bodies have alignment and proper joint mobility. Um, and, and so uh, that, as an example, uh, those people that had hands-on players, frankly, we took a lot more of those than we did uh, just one management person with, with Justin. Uh, I think Justin, um, frankly, uh, was the right person to go from a management standpoint. Uh, Justin's great at putting out fires. Uh, he's got a service-based mentality. And frankly, for me, I do some of my best work uh, relative to draft, free agency, and trade deadline prep using our facility. We have a great setup the Miller's provided uh, with Zions Bank uh, basketball campus and the, the theater uh, where we do a lot of our diligence is my best place to work relative to player personnel. So we've spent literally hundreds of hours in there in prep for the next period, which will be the draft period on October 16th. So uh, best practices, priority work, um, all uh, dictated um, a very uh, tough set of choices. But frankly, we supported the league. The travel party did need to be cut down. Uh, per medical recommendation. And normally we can travel 55 to 60. And so cutting it down to 35, you guys can do the math. There were some tough choices there. Okay, thanks. Next question will be from Sarah Todd, Deseret News. Sarah, I love your office. Thank you very much. I'm driving to California. So this is what you get. <laughs> very cool. Um, this is for either of you, both of you, whoever feels like they want to answer the question. Um, I'm wondering kind of what overall team evaluation looks like considering the situation. Normally you head into the playoffs and starting out the year, you have expectations based on acquisitions in the previous summer. And, you know, you're expecting to get to a certain spot with everything that has happened in the last few months. And not only that, but the injury to Bojan, the possibility of Mike Conley missing games, does that change how you're going to evaluate maybe how far you go and what that's going to mean for the future of the team? So I'll handle the first part and then I'll let Justin jump in if he wants. I, I don't think it changes as much as it does contextualize um, the season. And uh, again, I've stated before an NBA season is a series of short stories with, uh, you know, hopefully a lot of success, but defeats and trying periods. And, you know, obviously uh, this season we could write a book uh, relative to the COVID-19 
hiatus, the social justice hiatus that has made um, uh, this season much different. Uh, with that said, Sarah, and I, I'm glad you asked it because I wanted to address this. You know, sometimes my critiques can be pretty strong of us internally, coaches, players, management, scouts, you name it. And watching our coaches, our health performance people, uh, and uh, our nutrition as well, and our players uh, perform during the hiatus. I, I literally, I was just talking to Steve Starks in this, I'm in awe of how much work that we put in. Uh, our players are in terrific shape. Uh, they're very excited to compete. And, and so I think we'll be formidable um, because we have a hungry group uh, that does want to come together, that does have a baseline level of fitness. We, we, it was very important for us not to lose our fitness level. A big piece of improvement, and I don't know if this will manifest itself so much in the eight playing or seeding games in the playoffs, but a big piece of improvement when a college freshman becomes a sophomore, when a rookie becomes a second-year player, they get a chance to get away, reflect, take in information that the organization has for them, the coaches have. So I've seen a lot of growth. Jarrell Brantley is at the lowest playing weight that he's been since uh, he's frankly been in college. Uh, George Niang has a different level of fitness because of his discipline towards working out and his uh, calorie intake. Tony Bradley, you guys uh, have heard from, and I would echo uh, a lot of what Tony said relative to his physique and the uh, work that he put in. Mike Conley has continued the Fusionetics program that Mike Elliott set forth. And it's a real fundamental way uh, to tackle your health performance and reports that he's felt feels better now than he's had in years. I can just really, frankly, go on and on uh, relative to that measure. And so um, I think it gives us a chance to, uh, to be very formidable, uh, Sarah, uh, once we start moving to games. All right, there was more than half an hour of that, but there's a little uh, a little sample of some of the things that uh, Dennis Lindsay, Justin Zanuck, as they meet with the media, just a little taste of that, and you can hear the whole thing online at 1280thezone.com. All right, when we come back, Masters champ, Mike Weir. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK brought to you by Syringa Networks, home to complete business telecom and IT solutions. Backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. Time to talk with Masters champ Mike Weir now. He joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Mike, good morning. Morning, DJ. 
Better say, yeah, there you go. (laughs) He'll come after you. I'm here. (laughs) He'll come after you if you don't say hello. So we're curious. uh, Well, we're curious about many things, but let's start with the return to tournament golf in the uh, you know the new world post uh, post coronavirus and all that. You played in a couple tournaments in Utah and Colorado. What's the same, and what's changed? Oh boy. Well, the same as the competition. You know, I think you know with fans or without fans, I think once you get it, kind of get on the course and get out there, you're, you're competitive. I mean, whether you're playing, you know, $10 Nassau with your buddies or playing a tournament, you, you still want to win. You still want to compete. And, um, so that, that the feelings you get when you're playing a tournament are the same, but the, you know, the energy is quite different. I mean, you, you get your scorecard in the clubhouse. There's not a starter on the first tee or, you know, there's, Obviously, no fans. There's no concessions. There's no grandstands. So, you know, when you're playing well and you're and you're you're maybe making some birdies, you can really feed off the energy of the crowd. Um, so that's not happening. But um, yeah, it kind of brings me back to when I was starting out as a young pro in my in my twenties, coming out of BYU and playing. You know, some some events on the Canadian Tour and some in Asia and um, mini tours around the country, where you're just out there you know, playing for a few bucks, hopefully to kind of get by and play week to week, but there's no fans out there. So it kind of kind of has that type of feel to it. So does that force you then to have increased conf- uh, concentration and energy, those types of things? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of get lulled into being maybe a little bit too casual and, um, you know, not paying attention to details as much. Um, I found so yeah I think you know you do have to bring your your energy level up a little bit more sometimes and um, yeah just 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 pay attention to details I think you know with the energy of the crowd and everything it seems to heighten your awareness a little bit more than kind of what's going on right now you know for a lot of people the scariest thing playing golf is teeing off on the first hole with people watching Right, he's just like even right. one even one foursome can send people into a tailspin. Uh, right. But uh, and I'm curious how often pros feel nerves on the PGA Tour. For some guys, maybe it's just in Phoenix where the crowds are so big and the behavior can be so untraditional. How about we go with that? So untraditional. And with other guys, maybe it's the pressure of a major or something. How often do you feel nerves on a course and does that change at all when there's no fans out there, there's no one cheering, there's no one heckling either? Right. Right. It, it changes week to week. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's a real thing. In fact, I remember um, I played uh, the AT&T Pebble Beach one year with Wayne Gretzky and we were on the first tee and on Sunday I was playing really well, so we were in the in the final group playing with Davis Love, and because of our team, Wayne and I, made the cut as a team, he got to play Sunday as well with all the fans and being in the last group, and he looked at me and he said, I don't know how you do this. <laughs> he, was so, he was so nervous. I'm like, listen, you're the greatest hockey player of all time. He's like, I just have to jump over the boards and skate. I don't have to think about the crowd. We're reactive and we're just going. So, yeah, to your point, you know, each tournament's a little bit different. I still feel still feel the nerves whether there's people there or not, and then it gets more heightened at you know a tournament where there's fans. It gets even heightened more at a major, or I've never played a Ryder Cup, but for me a Presidents Cup when you're you know represent your country and your teammates, and there's a, another level of pressure that you're feeling on the first tee when you when you have a teammate to that you're trying to play well for as well. So there's kind of varying levels, um, but I think still right now guys 
are feeling the jitters. I mean, I've heard Tiger talk about it. Jack Nicklaus said he's, he wants to feel the nerves. That, that gets him excited and gets him engaged in what he's doing. If he didn't feel it, he, he knew he was in trouble. So I think we all feel it to some, some varying degree, depending on, on the tournament. So there's been three weeks of touring on the on the regular tour, right? They started down in uh, Fort Worth and uh, uh, what Hilton Head, and then Detroit. So I've watched all three of them because I've been starving for live sports. And now, as we got past the Detroit one and DeChambeau won it, obviously, it it be, kind of became a new normal to me watching without the galleries. And you're used to the galleries. Uh, do you think that 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 will be like in the short term for players that this is the new normal so they're going to adapt to it mentally yeah i, I think so pk i think guys are are starting to kind of the guys especially the guys that have played every week and now they're kind of falling into their own routine with that now and having to, to show up to the tournament a little bit early and get tested um and every day you go to the course you know we're doing all you know, the temperature checks and keeping the distance from the caddies and the caddies having to carry these little you know, disinfectant wipes to wipe down the, the pins and wipe down the rakes. And, you know, the first week of all that, we, it was kind of definitely bizarre to see all that going on. But now everybody, you know, it's kind of just, it's kind of part of the flow and in the in the course of the, of the whole and of the, of the day, it just seems to kind of flow naturally. And now that I've played a couple of these events, it's, it seems like it's the caddies are used to it, the players um, we're in the short term kind of dealing with it pretty well, I think. You mentioned DeChambeau. So what do you think when you see him just crush a ball 350 yards? <laughs> wow, it's uh, it's probably going to become the norm, I think. I think it's just with the way the better athletes that we have out there now and also, you know, knowing the science behind, you know, the optimizing your launch conditions, um, get finding the right golf ball shafts, driver heads to maximize what you can get out of it um, and now training in a way to, to maximize that getting these better athletes in there you're just seeing these golf courses just being bullied around and uh, it's in, in some ways it's, it's fun to watch but in some ways I feel bad for these golf courses dog leg holes that were designed to play a certain way and guys don't even look at bunkers that are supposed to play around they just send it way over and have little flips into the hole so Detroit Golf Club is a perfect example. Traditional, great old club. That's a beautiful traditional layout, but plays like a pitch and putt for these guys. And um, <laughs> you know, it just—it just—I think that's we're going to keep seeing more and more of that. You're going to see the, the college kids training in a way that, you know, for power and speed. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I just see the trend kind of continuing that way. I don't know how they're going to slow it down. That's funny you say about the dog legs because uh, last year I played Hidden Valley. I played with this little lefty from Canada, and he never had any dog legs. He just freaking hit it over, and he landed on the other side of the fairway. And honestly, it was ticking me off. (laughs) And now just think, these guys guys carry it 50 yards past me. So, you know, what, what they're doing to a golf course. Um, it's just remarkable. You know, I can do it on you know altitude here on a shortish golf course, but they're doing it on some, some pretty long golf courses. In fact, this last week where I played in Colorado, the course was over 8,000 yards long from the tip that had a 775-yard par 5 where I hit driver 3 with 7-iron, and these young guys are getting it close to the green. So 
770 yard hole. So, uh, yeah, totally, totally, completely different game, even from from my game. So that seems to me like there's three options going forward then, Mike. Mike Weir, Masters Champ, join us here on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. One, someone's going to build 9,000 and 10,000-yard courses because you're right, the college kids, and this is where the game's going in the next 10 or 20 years. Or can you redesign the older courses, traps, rough, plant trees, and really put a premium on accuracy and put a lot of risk out at 330, 350 yards and maybe less risk back at 290 and 300. Or we all just get used to 20 under, 25 under as winning scores and that's a new normal and and we enjoy it and so what? Yeah, those are great points. I mean, it just depends on, I guess, smarter people than me what what the the viewers on TV want to see. Do they want to see the low numbers or do they want to see guys struggle a little bit and and lengthen the courses and make, I've always believed there should be a premium on on, uh, driving accuracy, you know, make the rough a little bit more penal. Um, Some courses will be able to lengthen a little bit, obviously budgets and uh, and whether they want to do that or not. Um, some some courses are you know land restricted where they can't do it, but uh, some of the new courses, yeah, you can lengthen them out. Um, but it doesn't do much for the average player. That's the thing. You, right. you build these really long courses. It really doesn't do. You know, the average player hasn't gained a ton of distance with uh, the equipment. They've gained a little bit, but not not as much as you know the training that a professional athlete does to, to get ready is is completely different. So. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, but I have always believed that if you grow some rough, make the greens a little bit firmer. I saw a quote from Jack Nicklaus. He said that, and I totally agree. You make the greens a little bit firmer uh, and grow some rough, and yeah, if the guy's really long and he's hitting a narrow fairway, well, more power to him, but don't don't make it, you know, no, no penalty if he drives it up to 360 yards and he's 20 yards in the rough and he still has a shot. That should be, he should be in some deep rough. Um, I've always believed for, for tournament golf that uh, there should be a little bit more premium on um, hitting the fairway because out of the fairway you can spin the ball and be able to stop it on a firm green, where if you're in the rough, you shouldn't be able to stop it on a firm green. So, so like the, other, more the other day, Mike, I played with uh, the promontory pro, Ryan Karcher. I'm sure you know who he is. And yeah, Karcher's good buddy. And he had a, he, uh, and he was just awesome. And I watched him play, and his swing was so smooth, right? And it was like it was effortless, but he was just hitting bombs left and right. He was a really good player. And then I look yep. at DeChambeau, who has this really eye view as a violent swing. I haven't, I've only seen it in on television. I haven't seen it up person. I'm wondering how can the body be able to deal with that over a course of uh, the next 10 years because DeChambeau is young enough. He should be on the tour for the next 10 years. Are, do you have any concern about many any type of physical effects with that violent of a swing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's definitely an issue. And uh, the time will tell, you know, where when you're swinging at it that hard and, and it is a violent, violent move, you know, he... He has a great combination right now of this violent driver swing move, but he he has some nice uh, rhythm to his irons and uh, short game and stuff. So he's he's got a good combo of both things going on. But when you're when you're training for speed and trying to increase your speed, the only way to get speed is to keep swinging hard. And every week, trying to swing harder and harder to get that miles per hour of your swing up. So over time, you know it, it'll be interesting to see if if a guy's body holds up because we know and I know that. 
bunch of I've kind of studied this stuff. I mean, it puts a tremendous amount of torque on your spine, your low back, vertebrae, your hips. Um, when you're when you're swinging at 195 or your ball speed 195, swing speed 130 or something, you know that's a that's a lot of pressure on you know on your vertebrae and on different joints and ligaments and things. So yeah, well it'll, time will tell here what uh, what happens with these guys that are just ripping at it like that. You know, it's one thing for uh, an average golfer to take a lesson and try to tweak something. It's another thing for a pro to really, uh, for lack of a better word, analytics is the word, right, in, in baseball yeah. and in basketball. So how yeah. much are you into – baseball players are into launch angle, right, and they, they get into launch angle, they hit more home runs. When you're talking about, you know, golf and, and drivers and, and maximizing distance and club hit speed, do you get into stuff like launch angles or all this technical stuff that the elite pros are studying? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we have these uh – we have these launch monitors. Most of the guys on the tour now carry with them. They travel with their launch monitors, so they're trying to optimize their launch angle, the spin rate, uh, you know, ball speed, attack angle, all of these different analytics that uh, that maximize distance. And they, and they can vary it week to week. If a if a golf course happens to have gotten a lot of rain and it's very soft, and they want to. You know, they know the ball's not going to run very far when it lands, so they're going to try to maybe increase their launch. So they might practice if their launch angle is 15-degree launch. They might try to get it up to 16 or 17, um, which might get 20 more yards extra carry. Might might be spinning a little more, but that doesn't really matter if the course is wet. Where if the course is firm, they want to might want to bring their launch angle down, try to get the spin down so when it hits the ground, it takes off and, and runs a long way. So... Yeah, guys each week are tweaking and, and trying to find that, uh, that maximum benefit for that golf, particular golf course that week. So you played in, in Utah and then over in Colorado with the intent of preparing for the senior tour. How's the, how are those plans coming along? Yeah, pretty good. Uh, I don't have anything for the next uh, three weeks, the, the Champions Tour. Not, yeah, not the senior tour anymore, PK. It's the Champions okay. Tour. Okay, you're right. My, my mistake. <laughs> I'm we are seniors. Um, yeah, you know, it was good to play and see kind of some of my, my shortcomings, things I need to work on. Uh, and that's the purpose for me that I wanted to play some of these events to, to see under the gun what uh, what needs to be tidied up a little bit. And for me, I hit, I've been hitting the ball pretty darn good, and uh, my short game just needs some more work. I, I wasn't putting very well, and, you know, my up-and-down games, pitching and putting normally – that I hit some of my pitches around the greens to tap in. I was myself six feet, eight feet. Um, I wasn't very sharp there, so it kind of gave me a heads up on the next couple weeks. This, this is what I really need to work on, and uh, that's what I plan to do the next few weeks is really work on my short game. He's Mike Weir. He is the 2003 Masters champion, and he's gearing up for the Champions Tour. Mike, as always, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. There's Masters champ Mike Weir. When we come back, Sarah Todd joins us from the Deseret News to talk Utah jazz and life in the bubble. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. 
from Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280 The Zone and the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, time now to talk NBA basketball and jazz basketball with Sarah Todd from the Deseret News. Sarah joins us on the Sprint special guest line. Sprint makes it safe and easy to get what you need online. Visit Sprint.com for online services and local store availability. Sarah, good morning. Good morning. How's it going? It is going well. How's it going for you? It's great. It's, um, we're really close to actually having NBA basketball back, which is, it sounds crazy. I feel like that was never actually going to happen, so it's good. It's close. I still feel like something could go wrong and mess it up, but it is getting close. And the team's now in Florida, so, so that is a step forward. How, uh, how excited do you think the guys are and how uh, reticent do you think they are? How worried do you think they're not focused on the basketball because all the other stuff uh, is so overwhelming? What do you think the mix is there? Probably today they're probably feeling more of the reticence and a little bit of you know tempered expectations because the first two days that they're down there, they have to be quarantined and isolated completely to their rooms, and they're not allowed to leave because they have to have uh, they have to return two negative COVID nineteen tests before training camps and practices can really begin, and so. Right now, that when they are not allowed to like go outside and do anything, they have to stay in their hotel rooms. It's probably feeling like really alone and really isolating, and like, oh, this is much different than anything that we've ever done before. Uh, I think once they actually get on the court and they're allowed to be around each other, they can finally play five on five basketball, which they haven't been able to do since March. I think that's when they're going to start feeling really excited. And these guys really miss basketball, so I think that. That'll take over any reticence that they have. I know the NBA has some in-house people that are going to do some media, but what is being allowed for folks like you who are not being paid by the NBA as far as coverage? So they're going to have uh, a couple different uh, groups that they have down there. The first group, which uh, it's really expensive, and you have to commit to being there for the entire time. Um, is going to be like a really small group of like 10 journalists or reporters that are going to be inside the bubble with the players. They'll be tested every day. They'll um, get the same, you know, meal service that the players are getting. They have to follow all the same rules. Um, But they still won't be able to uh, do a ton of like one-on-one interviews. A lot of what's going to happen is going to be done via video and um, uh, by Zoom, which has become a part of all of our lives and will be forever, I'm sure now. Um, so that's going to be like the in-bubble journalist. Like I said, there's going to be like 10 of those. I don't know who they are and I don't know what it's going to be like. And then there's going to be a second group who you'll stay in your own hotel and have your own accommodations and you won't be tested daily. Um, but you'll still be able to go to the arenas and be present for the games. Um, and I think that that's the group that there's quite a few journalists that are actually going to be able to be there. I think that's the one that I'll probably be in, um, and be there for the first couple of games come July 30th. 
So a lot has been made. I guess any tidbit of information you get is, uh, you know, is something. And a lot has been made of the pictures of the food that the players sent out on day one. And I like food and people like to make fun of me for liking food. But I do think that there is something legitimate to when you're locked in your room, you know, it's something and it can really change your mood. How much do you think it's dragging guys down and how much is it just something to pass the time and tweet out photos about that? I mean, I think it's just something to pass the time, and I think they're having a lot of fun just joking around about the idea that they're, you know, that they're jailed up in their rooms and they're not allowed to leave. And, you know, once they're allowed to get out of the room, I mean, right now they're just having those meals that are delivered to them and provided to them. And to me, it looks like a fine meal. It looks like something that you would get on a on a flight, which... I mean, for me, I don't have, like, a ton of, like, millions of dollars. And so, like, anytime you give me a free meal, I'm very happy about it. So <laughs> that that looks great to me. Um, but these guys are going to be able to have, you know, tons of different food options. And they're going to have different chefs that are there in the bubble with them. And so it's not going to be like that all the time. That's what they're having with the first couple of days. And those meals will be available to available to them throughout the whole thing but they're they're gonna have tons of food and it's gonna be a lot better than any of the food that you or i are eating <laughs> That's probably true. so there's many different ways to go and approach uh my questioning for you with the gobert mitchell particularly with this latest story that espn has done but i'm gonna allow you to go whichever direction you want as far as your response and what your thoughts are I uh, I think that the ESPN story that came out kind of just reaffirmed what I would have thought before it came out. Um, you know, these are two guys that are really valuable on one team, and I think that in any work environment, even if it wasn't you know a professional sport team, that there's going to be tensions and arguments and nothing's ever perfect. And these are things that both Donovan and Rudy have said. And I think it's a little crazy for anyone to expect for them to be like BFFs and besties and have like rainbows and puppies shooting out of their eyes all the time. Like that's just not how life works. And the fact, I think that Rudy came across as really self-aware and saying, they're like, hey, I know that the spotlight's going to be on him more. I know who I am and how I get on guys and how I can grate at their, their uh, frustrations and annoyances and make it worse. And I know that I can be like that. And so I think that, that self-awareness can only help any relationship between them. And a lot of this situation was probably really overblown because of the situation that the whole world is in. So you've got no basketball, nothing else to talk about. So you hear about a fight between two players, and that's going to be the thing that everybody latches on to. I think that really, like, once basketball is back, this is going to be kind of a blip on the radar. Do you think their relationship really gets uh, altered for better or worse going forward by what kind of results they get in Florida and how long this lasts and whether they go out in four in the first round or whether they find a way to win a series and play well in the second one? Hey man, winning fixes everything. I mean, that's for all of us. A win in life can make all of your troubles go away for a certain amount of time. So, um, you know, even if there are 
problem problems that are a little bit bigger or like haven't been resolved right now if they start winning and they look great then that's going to make things feel a lot better if they go down there and they lay a bunch of goose eggs in a row and rudy's feeling like he's not getting the ball and you know donovan feels like rudy's not like setting screens hard enough or anything like that then and they're losing, and they're losing to teams that they think that they should beat, that's not going to help anything. But that wouldn't help anything even if there wasn't this fight that we know about between them. And so winning fixes everything. Yeah, it sure does. You know, I think that aside from the corona issues and all that stuff, they were going to have to make a decision on what to do with Gobert because that's a huge amount of investment financially that he's due next summer. And I do think that if they had to choose, they don't necessarily have to, but if they did between the two, I think they're going with Mitchell. Uh, what do you think needs to happen with Gobert as far as his game for the Jazz to say, absolutely, we're going to give you the max next summer? I think to just see him committing to progressing. And so if he, because we saw this season a little bit of a regression and um, that there were moments when he did seem a little bit selfish at times, or there were moments there that he was taking plays off. And so if they can see that there's more of a commitment there, I think that's just going to help their resolve and their want to kind of give him a really big paycheck. Uh, I think that they're going to want to do it anyways. I don't think that there's a ton that could happen that would make them want to get rid of Rudy or to go in the other direction. Uh, It would be really nice, I think, for them if they could get kind of a hometown discount with him and not have to go the full percentage of the Supermax, but um, kind of go a little bit smaller than that. And I mean, we're still talking about a ton of money. Even if the cap number goes down, like we're still talking about, you know, 25, 30% of the entire cap. And I think they would give him that money. I think that they're willing to commit 50% of their cap to both of those players and build around them because they are so good. Sarah Todd joining us, covers the Utah Jazz and the NBA for the Deseret News. You know, winning is a great deodorant. Totally agree with that. But I'm curious, and this isn't just for jazz management, although they're the team you know we watch here, so it's for them. But it's for all the all the manage, management around the league. I wonder how real these wins and losses are going to be. You're not you're not battling travel. You're not you don't have the home court, the, the visiting crowd going nuts, or you know buoyed by the home court and. Are some teams, when they feel like they're going to be eliminated, going to you know kind of you know fold the cards and throw them in and allow themselves to get smoked where normally they might fight back? And so, how much, if you're evaluating stuff, can you really evaluate these NBA games the way you would all the other NBA games we've watched up until now? Well, man, I feel like that's the kind of stuff that happens in the course of a normal season, or right in heading right into the playoffs when everything is normal, like everything except for, you know, it being an empty arena, which is incredibly weird, but that's just another variable that I think that these guys should take and look at it as like, Hey, we've got to overcome this. This is really weird. This is like nothing like this has ever happened. We've got guys that are sitting on a second bench behind our rotation guys and they're wearing masks and, you know, there's people in the arena that are wearing that. Like it's going to feel really strange. And I think that's, all something to overcome. In the course of a normal season, you've got guys that are injured or there's distractions during the playoffs 
stories are being told. Like, there's always stuff to make you feel weird and things that you have to overcome. And the fact that there probably are going to be teams that are, you know, either eliminated or essentially eliminated from playoff contention within the first few games, especially in the Western Conference with a few teams down way at the bottom. I mean, you've got teams that that happens to at the end of the season, too, and they start to throw in the towel and play their reserves more often and rest their veteran guys. And You've got teams that start resting their guys even when they've locked up playoff spots uh, and they're getting ready for the playoffs. So that's stuff that you see in the normal course of a season, and you'll probably see it through the first eight games down there. I don't think that's going to be any different. I think that you know, considering what all of these guys have had to go through and what they'll have to go through to actually get to a championship, I think that it's going to mean a lot to them. So with Bogdanovich out, I think it's going to be a team effort, obviously, to try to replace him. But I think that the heaviest responsibility is going to be on Conley, and he's had an up-and-down season. Do you think he's prepared or ready, or what do you expect to see from him? He better be, because <laughs> yeah. it's about to happen. And, uh, yeah, there's going to be... I think there's going to be a lot of expectations on him, uh, especially considering that, you know, he's had this time off and the kind of the excuse that, you know, he was coming off injury or he hadn't had enough time to really gel with the team. I think that those are kind of gone now and there's not anywhere else that they can go. And like, there's not going to be people around and Bogdanovich, who was the other guy that was new to the team, who seemed to gel with the team really immediately and didn't have a lot of the struggles that Mike had, had, he's, he's gone now too. And so a lot of the focus is going to be on him, but it's also going to allow him to do a little bit more of uh, playmaking and scoring that he was used to in Memphis that he didn't have to do here in Utah, especially with Bogdanovich on the floor. And so Hopefully he can kind of return to who he was back in Memphis and he'll be able to do it. He sounds really confident with the work that he did and how he's come along during the shutdown. Um, but sounding confident and putting it into practice are two different things. So I think you're right. There's going to be a lot of eyes on him right now. So assuming Conley comes out and plays great, and let's assume that he, you know, 20 points a game and kind of replaces what Bogdanovich was giving him. Well, the fact is he was given about 15 points a game who replaces what he was doing? Who steps up? Who else are you looking at? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's going to be totally by committee. You're going to be looking, you know, for Rudy to be a little bit more aggressive in the post. You're going to be looking at Donovan to do a little bit more and play, make and create space for himself. And you'll be looking at kind of those rotation guys, too. You're going to have to have, you know, you've got Joe, and he's going to have to really be a little bit more aggressive. He's one of the guys that you know, everybody knows like that he passes up shots and that he can definitely be more offensively aggressive. And when you lose a guy that shoots 40% from three and he's a 20-point-a-night guy in Bojan, Ingles is going to have to take some of those shots. And then guys like uh, Jordan Clarkson and George Niang coming off the bench, you know, they're going to be given a little bit of an uptick in minutes too, and they're going to have to be aggressive and you know, George and Joe, they're going to have to use their size on defense and really commit to those things so that they don't have lapses on the other end. So it's it's really going to be by committee, but you have to have guys that are willing to be more aggressive. Well, Sarah, a couple more weeks of writing stories that don't involve games, but, you know, in about three weeks or so, it'll all be back to the new normal, <laughs> whatever that <Yeah>. is. <laughs> well, whatever that looks like. I'm, I'm looking forward to 
uh, writing from isolation and watching games on TV. <laughs> Sarah Todd, she covers the Utah Jazz and the NBA for the D News. Sarah, thanks a lot. No problem. Have a good rest of your day. Sarah Todd, Utah Jazz beat writer for the Deseret News. When we come back, what is trending? All the headlines, yes, even the bad ones from college football. We'll get to that next. Stay with us.